Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Gene Bereson. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, O'Neill Britton is Chief Medical Officer uh, and Senior Vice President at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, and um, our, our discussion today is going to be about how racism impacts parents, caregivers, uh, and also kids, teens, and families. But as usual, we'll start by kind of finding out how we've been the last week. So, O'Neill, how's your week been? <laughs> well, at the risk of lapsing into a therapy session, Gene, uh, <laughs> very open-ended way to start a conversation. <laughs> uh, so first, let me just apologize to your listeners. I am in an office, which is uh, uh, approximate to uh, the North Station train station, and they're humming outside so forgive me if you hear a slight background noise um, but how have my week been boy that's a great question because hasn't it been just a crazy year of crazy weeks and uh, recently um, I, I saw this joke um, uh, sort of a post on Facebook circulating just talking about the many things that happened this year that in normal times would have been you know you know, earth shattering or news breaking, you know, uh, how many times does the prince divorce the crown in, in Europe? How many times does, you know, do we have a, you know, a, a pandemic breakout? But we're just all these things have happened this year that would, uh, would in normal times really be interesting. But my week this week has been largely reflecting more of many of the things going on around the country like everyone else is. Uh, we are watching the numbers closely here in Massachusetts, um, you know, making sure that we are prepared and ready should a second uh, wave of COVID hotspots develop. Um, and we are continuing to watch and observe the many, um, um, you know, um, protests and appropriate, in my view, uh, calls for racial justice across the country. And we're watching our leaders and how they respond, how they react. And probably the thing that probably this week that I say, you know, that I would say give me pause is the attempts or the, the, um, the worry about school reopenings this fall. Um, and the reason why it gives me pause is that once again, we're going to see the layered and structured unfairness in our society play out. And it's going to play out in the schools. You know, no matter where you go in our society, this unfairness, this layered structural unfairness plays out in many ways. And whether you go to the media or the press or the wealth or the criminal justice system or the educational system or the healthcare system, we see it play out. And so I'm, I'm a little bit worried that our schools will be forced to open that brown kids, brown and black kids are gonna suffer disproportionately because they're in larger classrooms, they have less support, um, they have uh, you know, uh, um, less means to transport to and from schools. Um, and we are, and they already, their education has already been impacted disproportionately compared uh, to others in the spring. And, and that we're just going to uh, pretend like it's business as usual and we're going to have more layered injustice piled on, you know, very young people, very young minds, developing minds. And, um, and so I hope that we take these things into consideration as we prepare to have a plan to reopen schools 
and that we support the students, support the teachers, support the, you know, support everyone and the parents uh, who are involved in this decision. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have a better plan than just let's reopen the schools. Well, thanks. So, you know, that raises some other questions uh, that I'd like to uh, bring up right now. Uh, we, we know that uh, you've talked about social injustice um, uh, and we know that the social and economic determinants of illness, such as poverty, lack of insurance, lack of access to care and follow-up um, are prominent. Do you feel that this, uh, not just social injustice in terms of the schools, but what about social injustice in the healthcare system? I mean, how do you see racism being played out, even in implicit ways, um, in our healthcare system? Um, and how does this affect kids and, 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 and parents and people of color? Well, I have the unique advantage of being on this journey, being a black person, being a black man. And I will tell you that, you know, I, the first thing one has to acknowledge is um, that if you're black and growing up anywhere in the world, it, it is immediately, immediately apparent to you that something is off. And there are two ways to think of why something would be so off. Uh, one way, parroting the phrase that my global health uh, partners use, is to say that, um, you know, talent and uh, ingenuity is equally scattered across populations around the globe but resources aren't. So one way is to look at it and go, there is an unfairness in how the resources is acqui are acquired and distributed across the globe. And hence we end up in this situation where, you know, things are just very off, even, with, even through the lens of young eyes, through kids, right? Um, where do I, why do I live where I live? Why are my school sports equipment, it seems less shiny, and less potent than the kids across the diamond. Why, you know, you know, why do my parents seem to be so appear so stressed about work and money, and you know, and just trying to live? So I, I do feel like um, uh, there is a, a bit of a um, you know resource distribution that is just driving uh, this outcome. On the other side of this, if you don't accept the resource um, distribution model, then there is something inherently wrong with cultures or people. And that's a model that many in the country, uh, many in the country embrace that, you know, nothing is wrong with the country. If you work hard, if you pull up your bootstraps, if you get down to it, you'll succeed. And yes, it is true that America allows exceptional people very good people from all walks of life to succeed. From way back when, Frederick Douglass succeeded, you know, in the throes of slavery. W.E.B. Du Bois succeeded. Michael Jackson succeeded as part of life when way before the civil rights movement, as did Muhammad Ali, Martin Luther King. So we have many examples over history of people being successful when they are exceptional. But what we are working towards is an America where the average person, the quote, average person, and I say quote average because none of us are really average. We all have talents. 
some of us, our talents, we just are born in a time when our talents are not necessary yet. But we all have inherent talents. But we want to live in a world where the average kid feels like they have a chance to succeed. That only exists in one part of our society as a known fact, where people put in resources and support a child and get a child ready for the world. But in other parts of our society, I think that is a challenge. It continues to be a challenge. And when you're not exceptional, when you're not very good, you are so far behind the eight ball that it's almost impossible to catch up. So, so you know, I choose to hold on to the fact that resources are not equally distribute, distributed. And that, that paradigm, paradigm also applies to healthcare. Healthcare is not immune to the paradigm of what is working elsewhere in our society. And I would say that I see racism in healthcare every day because I see the, the outcomes of healthcare, which are racial disparities. And so the outcomes tell the story. We may, have, may, we may try to have many explanations as to why the outcomes are the way they are, but at the end of the day, it is clear that the outcomes are driven by race, even when you correct for socioeconomic status and that they're not helped by socioeconomic status. But all these are powerful factors that are superimposed on each other. And, you know, when you even dig further, you will see that the outcomes by race are worse. The outcomes by race and gender are worse. The outcomes by race, gender, and sexual identity are worse. You know, so it's just a, it's just a, a, a sort of a linear uh, impact of, you know, minorities in many forms being you know, outsize, in an outsized way, being impacted by the structural issues that we're grappling with. Just to follow up on that, you know, we know from what you're saying that there are disparities in, in, in resources. Um, but beyond that, do you feel that minorities, Black, people of color, LGBTQ individuals, um, distrust the healthcare system? Do you see them coming to MGH? Now, we have a checkered history in Boston, you know, with a relatively small black population and with a checkered history of school busing. Boston has not been seen by many people of color as an altogether friendly place. But looking at the MGH or looking at the healthcare system, do you see that compounding this issue of resources is an inherent and perhaps justified distrust of the healthcare system? So the way I explain it, Gene, is that we as healthcare providers, we ask people to suspend belief when they come see us and trust us. But if you're a Black person and you feel like the police force is hostile or the criminal justice system is hostile, or when you try to get a mortgage, you feel like the bankers are not trying to help you, or when you go to school and argue on behalf of your kids, you feel like the school system is against you. So why would it be different when you show up to the doctor? right? It's the same looking people who are constantly, you feel are constantly picking at you, underpaying you, not giving you a fair shot. And then when I come into the physician's office, because I have a white coat, I'm supposed to quickly suspend my belief that you have my best interest at heart. Now physicians have a unique role in that we tend to be compassionate people and we probably tend to have a lot of face time with our patients. We can create the FaceTime with our patients to build trust. And the trust 
is in the context of not being adversarial per se. But that has also been corrupted by the fact that we did research on black people without saying what it was. Um, we undertreat black people. Many decisions as you go through the care continuum, you're wondering, gosh, I wonder if they're telling me everything or I wonder if they're giving me all the options. I wonder if they're trying hard enough or they're just being dismissive as is consistent with everywhere else in my life. So we, we, it is nice sometimes to try and think about healthcare and try to segregate it from the rest of the oppression, but it's very hard to do that. And I would say it's a component of the oppression. Actually, when, stand, when, when it stands alone by itself, it clearly shows it is carrying out, you know, uh, some of the, 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 the it's, it's, it's resulting in some of the outcomes that we worry about. So yes, physicians have a unique role. Yes, we like to think of ourselves as fear arbiters of good science, but in the end, I think we also become agents of the oppression. And so we have to try to unwind it broadly. Uh, so that's point number one. Point number two is around, is Boston sort of a friendly place? And I tell people all the time that, you know, people who say, I, you know, black people will look at me all when I travel around the country. And I, I, so I'll, I'll give you this anecdote, actually. When I travel around the country and give talks, people will say to me, where are you from? And I'd say, Boston. If they haven't seen my title, they said, where are you from? And I'd say, Boston. And almost immediately, white people would be happy for me. And they will go into the cape and the skin and the vineyard, and they would regale me with stories of, you know, patriotism and, and sports sometimes, right? Uh, things that Boston are known for. When I tell Black people or Hispanic people that I'm from Boston, they give me a quizzical look. And they're like, well, why are you in Boston? Oh, you're at Harvard. So that sort of makes sense. That's sort of, you know, I guess you're one of those achieving type. But why would you be in Boston? But I tell people all the time when I travel around the country that my experience, you know, I'm an immigrant, and my experience of America is of one, one kind of feeling. And the feeling in Boston is no worse or no better than the feeling in New York or the feeling in Chicago or the feeling in Atlanta. You know, it's a complicated country that has racial overtones. So Boston people get sensitized because people said Boston is the most racist uh, city in the, in the United States. I think that's an oversell of Boston. I think Boston is as racist as anywhere else and it's as least racist as anywhere else. So, but we have an opportunity in Boston to be different and that's what I'm appealing for. So let me ask you this, uh, and this is a tough question. Um, do you feel that it's important to recruit doctors and caregivers um, who are people of color? And if so, how how difficult is that in 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 at Boston and and at, at MGH? So I do believe it's important because again, we were speaking earlier about the trust issues, and you definitely, while people actively work on developing rapport and trust with patients. There is no doubt that when you find more commonality with your physician, you, it's just human behavior. You're the psychiatrist. Human behavior. The more connections you have, the easier it is to build trust. In a nefarious way, that's the reason why Ponzi schemes almost always work within ethnic groups. You know, when somebody has figured out how to get all the Italians to give, you know, Mr. Ponzi, the original one, 
or Madoff. All the Jewish guys are getting together. And so Ponzi schemes almost very hard to work across racial groups, you know, because people go, you're looking out for me. You're one of us. I got it. You found an inside way. Right. And so they tend to exploit commonalities. Similarly, though, trust can be used as a reason, uh, you know, trust can exploit commonalities. And so it's important for us to report, uh, uh, recruit uh, physicians of color and scientists of color because we're trying to grow uh, a population here that when people, when our very smart students who have made the exceptional students, one thing they always say to us is that, you know, there's not a lot of anchors here. When I look around, I appreciate education, I appreciate the learning, but there's not a lot of people that have the kind of commonalities I need to feel at home, right? Some cities have that just in a, from a population standpoint. 50% of Atlanta is black. You know, 25% of New York City is black. You know, 25% of Chicago is black. So they just have more numbers. Interestingly, I think only like 5 to 10% of Los Angeles is black, but they have the reputation of appearing more black than Boston. Boston in the city confines is largely minority. In the greater suburbs, it becomes more white. And Boston as a, and Massachusetts as a state, I think, has uh, something like 8% uh, black people in Massachusetts. But in the city of Boston, it's over 25% too. So we probably have enough to work with. And I think recruiting additional people here will be critical because it helps to build the community trust. But we also have to work to invite people here so that when they do come, the professionals, they feel like they have a home, they feel like they have a community, and we have reached some critical mass. I think that's our biggest challenge right now. We have, it, we have some, but not enough for people to feel like I have critical mass. And so when you don't have critical mass, you tend to go back to where you're from, no matter how brilliant the science is or how you know, interesting the work is. It's interesting. It's, it's, um, it's, it's very hard to dispel myths. I mean, the myth is, is that Boston is all white. It's, it's surprising that 25% of Metro Boston is, is black. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, uh, we, and, then, and also if you add in the Latino population. It's a large group. It's a very large, and, and refugees from all over the world. Uh, constantly changing uh, population. So uh, I think we shouldn't uh, take for granted, um, you know, sort of this growing group. And interestingly, too, um, the immigrant population, the Latinos, the refugees, um, other immigrants, um, you know, they experience all of America as foreign. So making them feel welcome, making them feel settled is a great way to grow. I know, having grown up in Brooklyn, New York, that the thriving Black community in New York has been anchored by Black Americans and immigrants. A, you know, a large amount of immigrants coming together, coalescing, and people feeling like they have community and connections. So, so one, now this is a sociological kind of question, but, you know, Boston is, is I'm from Philadelphia, and, and, you know, my sister's from Philly, and when she came to visit me in Boston years ago, she says, we're all black people. <laughs> but the, the thing about Boston that makes it so unique is that it really is segregated, and the, the populations are separated. So coming from Brooklyn, and I have family in Brooklyn, yeah. um, how do we 
make these communities come together so that the minority populations can form that networking infrastructure kind of <clears throat> sense of community that we see in other cities, but I don't believe we see it as much in Boston. Or is or am I wrong? <laughs> no, it's interesting because I've always I've, I've thought about this, and you know, one of the big uh, things about New York, for instance, compared to Boston, is that New York has a very well developed, you know, uh, public transport system that most people use. And I used to, I, I have lived in Brooklyn, in New York, and I used to live in Queens. Now, I always tell people that New York is just as segregated in Boston, but it doesn't appear so. So if you take the F train in Queens from, I used to live in uh, Jamaica, Queens, um, uh, 169th Street um, and Hillside Avenue, that, that, which is the second to last stop on the F train. If you take the F train from 179th Street, the last stop, into Manhattan, by the time you get into Manhattan, the train is very multicultural. But every stop in Queens is approaches 100% of one people. So the first couple of stops, lots of blacks gets on, get on. 179, 169. When you get to Kew Garden, back then at least from my memory, I believe the Hasidic Jewish people would get on. When you get on at Jackson Heights, the Colombians would get on. When you get on further down in Astoria, the Indians would get on. When the train shows up in Manhattan, it looks like this potpourri. Different neighborhoods, though, along the line are very different. The Koreans would get on at Roosevelt Avenue, Jackson Heights. And so you'd, you'd, you'd come through um, Queens and you'd get to Manhattan and people would be like, oh, it's multicultural. And because the subway is such a venue for travel, you see this mix in the subway. Now in Boston, we have a much smaller public transport system. And actually, most people can get to work without seeing others either through commuting by cars or walking or riding. It's a pretty small city, right? There's a hardly any, if you go five miles in any direction, you're out of Boston, really. And so, you know, so the, the, the relative exposure of people to others is limited. And it appears then, the segregation appears amplified, you know? So I do feel like that's a little bit of a geographic thing. The other thing that we don't see enough of in Boston, which is a, a big calling card for me as a healthcare provider, is that you know, the, the majority black neighborhoods in Boston have no presence, or I shouldn't say that, let me take that back, have very little presence of the MGB system. So if you came here and you drove from, you know, if you went down to um, Dudley Square and drove all the way to Mattapan Square, which is like four miles, four to five miles of densely populated Black Boston, if you were able to see an MGB sign or a State Street sign or a Fidelity sign, just think of all the corporate giants, anyone from Kendall Square sign, you won't see it. It will not be there. And so we have to figure out how to have a presence in these neighborhoods. And so we get used to this idea of people seeing us and, and, uh, and, we, and us seeing them. So, so that raises a couple of really important issues. And that is, speaking of MGH, um, how can we combat racism? Um, one thing that you just raised, of which I wonder is, should we be having some satellites or some clinics in neighborhoods of, of color uh, going beyond the... Um, 
you know, the, 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 the mothership, as it were. Um, and, and internally, what can we be doing to combat racism at, at MGH? So it's a great question. And I think um, I look at it from the standpoint that it's great business to get into poor neighborhoods because poor neighborhoods rarely stay poor for multiple generations. And when you get into poor neighborhoods and help them lift themselves up, um, they tend to have great loyalty. Your children have great loyalty to you. Your grandchildren have great loyalty to you. And actually that's the legacy on which the MGH was built, right? It was built for the servants of Beacon Hill, right? And so the servants of Beacon Hill spawn children in these neighborhoods that have great loyalty to the MGH. So I think as a long-term business strategy, it's important for us to have a presence in these neighborhoods because once we address the issue of, of, you know, of making sure we don't try to keep them poor forever, right? So once we address the opportunity issue and we address the support issue they need to be successful, we will engender great loyalty, generation-spanning loyalty. And in business, there's no better commercial than a happy customer, right? So, so I see it not only as a social justice issue, but I also see it as a business opportunity. How can you have large swaths of the population of which you have very little presence, but you will turn to them and now market to them during times when they, you know, when they uh, develop some level of affluence? You, know, you want to get them before that. You want to get them when they were trying to get better not necessarily when they're the best and they have choices. So that's, that's number one. But, I, I, but in terms of what the MGH is doing, um, so the MGH you know, is in a great space right now. We have a lot of kinetic energy on campus about these issues. We have a lot of interest. And the question is, how do we channel that kinetic energy into action? And how do we make those actions meaningful and impactful, and then in the long run, create change? Um, from my perspective, um, the, uh, the, the first thing that I'd like to really assure people, especially good white people, is that, you know, we have to move beyond seeing racism as a good-bad binary. You know, we are all agents and inheritors of a racist structure. And whether it is active or, as they say, unconscious or passive, we are all acting as agents of it. Even I have done that because I have been on admissions committee rejecting Black people for not doing enough. I have been on selection committees saying that your portfolio could be more broad, right? And that's just how you're trained. That's how you are told to think. And so you, it becomes normalized in you. And before you know it, you are, you are being an agent, and you know, an, an active arm of sort of of multiplying the issues that, in in the very first place, created differences between people. So I think we want everyone to recognize that we inherited this, that we have an opportunity to change it, and that just because we are agents of it doesn't make us bad people. It makes it gives us opportunity. If we don't acknowledge it, if we refuse to see it then we could be classified in the face of evidence as, hey, you got to do more. So I think there's great energy to do more at Mass General. I think there's a lot of activities going on now trying to lay out Joe Betancourt or 
our vice president of uh, equity and inclusion has been working super hard with a whole grassroots set of people about creating a 10-point plan for the Mass General about how we can be anti-racist or combat racism within our walls. And that involves our work with our own employees. That involves work with patients. And that involves doing things like being more present in neighborhoods that we're not present. Because our original mission was to help the underserved. And so we, we have to look back at our origins and recommit to them. And I see it as a part of the, the bigger solutions here. That's terrific. And, and uh, let, me, let me just um, uh, ask a, a question. Since many of our audience uh, are parents and caregivers, um, uh, what, we, we're doing stuff to help our, our, our staff, our professional staff, uh, and, and work in communities. But what, what do you think we should be doing in pediatrics and in child and adolescent psychiatry to combat transgenerational racism? As, as, you know, as you just pointed out, racism is in a sense, this may sound paradoxical, it's colorblind. Um, all of us have inherited a certain amount. And from, from what I know about it, 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 it is transgenerational. Um, uh, whether you're, you know, so could we be doing something to help our kids as they're growing up be more sensitive and aware of the impact of racism on their lives and on parents and caregivers on how they can kind of like work outside of the hospital system to kind of combat racism? Um, it is an interesting um, um, paradigm. You know, we as physicians, you know, we have a we have a sworn duty to take care of the health of people, and one way in which we do that is to advocate for people. And there's no greater advocacy than, in my view, in the field of pediatrics and uh, psychiatry. Um, those are two, uh, you know, important spaces in which we have to advocate for people who are generally more vulnerable. You know, elder services one could throw in there, and clearly people with disabilities. But you know, these are more vulnerable populations, right? And so now we have a socioeconomic construct revolving around race, right? And so we have created more vulnerable populations uh, for that. So racism is the impact is absolutely transgenerational. You know, I, I was on a I was having a conversation earlier today, and I said, you know, one of the if you have children or if you have siblings. And, and again, I would ask you to fact check me here, Gene. But one of the very earliest um, human trait that we develop or we seem to espouse, even in the, in the mouths of babes, from the mouths of babes, is this idea of fairness. Kids go, it's not fair. That's not fair. And it starts at two. So it's like one of the fundamental things, right, of kids going, that's not fair. And so kids start asking these questions or in the absence of asking these questions, they fill in the blanks and go, oh, I guess this is the way it's supposed to be. So we have a duty to represent what we write on paper and what we say out of our mouths in reality to children, right? We have a duty to make sure we're consistent in our actions and how we work as an example to the children we're raising. And we have a duty to educate them 
I remember last year, my son was in third grade and they were going to talk about slavery in his class. And my son is uh, one, uh, the only black kid in the class. And they send this large amount of information home uh, to the parents saying, we're going to talk about slavery and here's how we're going to talk about it. And here's what we're going to talk about. And I, it, I, I reflected when I was reading it that the, the fragility of what we speak about is so strong that there is no other module in the school curriculum where I felt the school emailed me and go, here's what we're going to talk about. Here's how we're going to talk about it. Here's what we're going to include, right? And so they anchored on the usual things. Martin Luther King was a good guy and he taught us to treat each other better. There was slavery and it was bad, but it sort of moved on quickly. And, you know, and, you know, they never talked about, you know, 1619 to 1865. So, you know, when you are growing up in America, you miss the opportunity to learn from history. You miss the opportunity to be compassionate to each other. And you miss the opportunity to learn that we're going to have to figure out how to be fair and share resources more because everyone matters. Right. And so. So, you know, as pediatricians, I see them playing an amazing role in educating themselves and then pivoting and educating parents and educating children and advocating on their behalf. It's interesting, too, that, you know, racism won't end until, or racism, I don't know when it will, if it will ever end. Uh, there was an estimate, um, I think, years ago that uh, based on the current rate of progress, and this was all pre-George Floyd and pre-COVID, but based on the current rate of progress, but it was post-Obama, I think it was done in 2017, that the estimate of, of um, Black Americans achieving equity in terms of wealth, health, and criminal justice reform, the estimate of the amount of time it would take for that to occur was 500 years from where we are today. Based on where we started, and based on where we were in 2018 and where we are going, it would take 500 more years to get that wealth gap that exists in Boston, for instance, $8 amongst the median Black American to 275000 for the median white American. It would take 500 years. Staggering. Staggering. Even in the presence of having the first Black president, right? So staggering. So that's the opportunity there. Where you know, racism will evolve when white Americans commit to educating themselves and learning about it and moving beyond this good bad binary. If I am racist, I must have a funny hat and carry a cross and do tiki torches or whatever, and just recognize that it's bigger than that, it's more structural than that. Um, do not take the personal prejudices as this beginning and end of racism. So educate yourself and then pivot and educate the people around you. Because as we say, the society is fairly segregated and white people in general must tolerate hearing other white people do and say things that are not exactly right, right? It must be accepted on some level for this to continue. And there's definitely some benefit for people to continue in this way. And I'll stop by saying like the, you know, the big, the big debate about police uh, um, actions, for instance, and folks saying, well, it's just a few bad apples. And I was like, no, you're not listening to the victims. If it was a few bad apples, there wouldn't be this many complaints. There's lots of complaints. 
So it can't be a few bad apples. Just by drawing conclusions and having experienced that personally growing up, I know there isn't a, it, it's just not a few bad apples. It's bigger than that. So, so that's the role I see physicians playing more, not only as caregivers, but as advocates and as educators. And I always go back, I used to give the opening talk um, on welcoming residents to the residency interview day. And I used to remind them that the word doctor comes from the Latin root docere, which means to teach. That's our mission, teach. One of the things I think that you've just said, which is so important, is you've given a mandate, really, to, for the Clay Center and for pediatricians and for teachers, I think, to start social-emotional learning early, you know, and to start talking about fairness in new ways and different ways. I mean, you know, it doesn't mean I got a cookie, I didn't get two cookies. It's, yeah. it's talking about race. It's talking about inequities in different people. And it's beginning as early as possible and continuing that. So that's a mission. And, you know, I suppose we have, a, we have leverage as, as physicians. Yeah. Uh, we can, we can, we can advocate for schools and families for doing that. Yeah. Is there anything that I, before we close, cause it's getting about that time. Is there anything about racism and healthcare and from your vantage point, you've covered so much ground that we haven't touched upon that you'd like to tell our listeners. Well, I'd like to, which I always tell people is that I, I like to remind people that the enemy, racism is a formidable enemy. Like sexism, like other isms we have, it has been around for centuries. Um, it changes forms when you attack it. And even when you make progress, which Ibrahim Kendi in his great book, uh, you know, stamped from the, from the beginning tells us, even when you make progress on racism, the racists are making progress too. And so that duality is how America has evolved. So just because we see things and we think we're making progress, remember that other forces out there are constantly thinking and devising ways of making progress. And until we get to some common narrative where we reconcile the two, this is a fight that we should respect the enemy, recon recognize it's going to be a generational fight. As I said about that 500 year estimate, it's going to be multi-generational and that we have to watch it change forms and address it when we recognize that. And if we focus on the outcomes and we remain compassionate to each other, right? So if we look around and say, this looks different and better, or this looks the same, or this looks worse, as long as we commit to addressing it constantly and raising the issue, I think we'll be in good stead. But that's really that's really what's at, at, uh, at stake here. I, again, I was having an earlier conversation today and I was thinking about the opening lines of the U.S. Constitution. And I said the interesting thing about the U.S. Constitution was that as soon as the ink dried, we were in conflict because we weren't granting all these things to everyone. And I am sure, I don't know, but I shouldn't say I'm sure, but I think I'd be, I think it would be pretty interesting if the forefathers were able to show up today 
and see the world and see clearly that they were wrong and wondered if they had chosen at that time to be even bigger leaders than they were and freed the slaves and made them immediate citizens. I wonder what America would look like today, how much more greater we would be. And that's the alternative. I think we continue to miss opportunities because we have not unshackled the power of our people, whether that's race, whether that's gender, whether that's you know, homophobia, we have to unshackle ourselves and get beyond these issues. So I, I guess what you're saying is, while the, the Constitution was a wonderful revolutionary document, it was inherently biased. <laughs> it, it started out in conflict as soon as the ink dried. And that is the big thing. We, we have to, you know, we say, gosh, you know, if, if that next bold step, because they recognize that they would be in bias, right? And they couldn't quite come to bring their minds to it. And today we recognize we're being biased again. And maybe 300 years from now, our you know, generations beyond us will look back and go, what were they thinking? Maybe they will say that. But, uh, but, um, but that is the essence of it. How much more we could be doing if we weren't having these conversations? Well, they were saying all men are created equal rather than all people are created equal. I mean, it gets, it gets into the, 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 the history uh, of our country. As we, we, have to, we have to wind up, but one thing that we typically do at the end is we ask um, our guests, um, what news, what in the news has recently been important to you? Well, I started out by saying that, you know, I, I do feel like... Um, um, I do worry that as we head to the fall, that our vulnerable populations remain very vulnerable, and that uh, that we may um, they may have to yet again pay the price of the COVID pandemic in 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 ways that you know um, people who are more fortunate do not. Um, so I do worry about that, but uh, I, I am somewhat buoyed by the fact that. We're having many conversations that I could not imagine us having a year ago. And uh, there is great kinetic energy to do different and to do better. I, I, um, I am really, uh, really, uh, I, you know, I'm struggling to imagine what the next six months will look like, especially with this big looming election in front of us and what it would mean, you know, uh, what it's going to mean for the side that loses. And I, I don't, pre I don't, uh, um, I don't. Uh, unlike many people, I, I am not banking on this idea that Trump will definitely go. I think America is a mysterious place. These forces are mysterious, and we'll have to wait till the day after to to, to pick up the pieces. But um, so there's lots. There are many things that sort of sit in my headspace as we look forward. Some just out of curiosity about how we evolve as a nation, some about worries about vulnerable people, and some about optimism that, you know, we're having conversation that we just never did, and important conversations. Yeah. Well, and I'd like to close on, on uh, remembering uh, John Lewis, who had conversations when I was growing up. Um, but um, I, would, I don't want to end this without mentioning uh, that wonderful man, John Lewis. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being with us. And for those listening, um, if you have questions, comments, thoughts, um, 
please uh, let us know. Um, and um, and Opie, I, I hope you'll come back. And maybe in six months after the election, you'll come back and, and do a, a round two uh, as, as we see what, what comes to pass. And uh, to all your listeners, I hope everyone stays safe, wear your mask, wash your hands, and just uh, do your best to contribute as best as you can. Thanks. I'm Gene Bereson. And so it's just like, this is, these are all the transfers of wealth that inevitably are backed by racism and racist thoughts. And, it's, uh, and that's what we're trying to debunk, right? Saying, you know, you can have a whole black neighborhood which has decent upper class people trying to work like everybody else and trying to get your kids into good schools and trying to have great outcomes. It's fascinating, but it's, uh, mm-hmm. these are all interesting statistics.